You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. The Bible reading comes from Luke, chapter 22, verses 39 to 46. Luke chapter 22, verses 39 to 46. And he came out and went, and was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood, falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Now, toward the end of the uh, 2015, uh, 2015, the world was uh, rocked by the tragic news of a terrorist attack in Paris, France, with many lives lost and countless injured. And it was a scary moment across the world. And if you remember, there was something that came out of it, actually, that would impact the social media world until now. It was not long after the the events of France that somebody started the social media platform, uh, Twitter hashtag, hashtag pray for Paris. Some of you may remember this. And it caught on gangbusters, this hashtag. People all around the world were putting up on their social media posts this hashtag, hashtag pray for Paris. A huge range of celebrities do it. I remember seeing Snoop Dogg, hashtag pray for Paris. And it's like, I can't imagine Snoop Dogg praying. Even politicians and world leaders were hashtagging all across the world, hashtag pray for Paris. And it's this hashtag pray for something that has been become a bit commonplace now in Western culture. Since then, we've had pray for Ukraine, even hashtag pray for Damar, which was the NFL player who recently suffered a cardiac arrest on the field for those that were watching. And in remembering the pray for Paris hashtag, it had me intrigued by this response by people whenever a tragedy strikes that makes national or world news, that people often respond with prayer for the situation for the people or or the peoples involved. And have you noticed that even those who are clearly not Christian or even religious are offering up the same prayers in those moments? Even the secular world thinks of prayer when people need help, when there's potential grief, affliction, or sorrow going on. Prayer is often the go-to. But I think it's safe to say that to many non-believers, prayer is often a way of saying, I'm, I'm thinking of you. Prayers and thoughts, which really translates to thoughts and thoughts, right? Like I see you and you're in my mind and I'm, I'm hoping you pull through is what a lot of, I guess, non-Christians who, pra- who kind of say that they're praying will be thinking. But to the, to the believer, to the Christian, Prayer is so much more. 
As Martin Luther, theologian, said, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. And so when something like the Paris events happens, when an event evokes a need of help, of rescuing, of good news to come through, Christians aren't praying as a means of saying, my thoughts are with you, but Christians are praying to their creator God, whom they trust and rely on and believe can do anything that he might intervene, that he might bring peace and comfort that surpasses all understanding, that he might make good out of the situation, that he might help. When a situation seems most dire, when we are in our most need for many, even if they don't believe, they pray in hope for something, something higher to be their help. For us, the Christian, we know that there can only be one help, and that help comes from the Lord. And this is what we see all throughout Scripture, don't we? Like Psalm chapter 50, verse 15 says, Call on me in the day of trouble, I will deliver you. In the book of James, chapter 5, verse 13, it says, Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. When Jacob was afraid of his brother Esau, prayer was the answer talking to God. The Bible encourages us that in the minutes, the hours, and the days of need, prayer is our prescription. As author and pastor J.C. Ryle puts it, let us take care that we use our master's remedy if we want comfort in affliction. Whatever other means of relief we use, let us pray. The first friend we should turn to should be God. The first message we should send should be to the throne of grace. And it's in our passage today that we see that all the more true with what many Christians deem one of the greatest, if not the greatest prayer in all of scripture. Jesus is here at his greatest time of need. While earlier this series, we went through the Lord's prayer that Jesus taught his disciples. Here we have the Lord's prayer in Gethsemane. The Lord is praying as what's about to happen would begin the proceedings of what's going to going to be him being crucified on the cross. Jesus with his disciples goes to the Mount Olives, Mount of Olives, the Garden of Gethsemane as described in other accounts where he would pray before his immense time of trial. Well, what we read here isn't a very lengthy prayer. It is a prayer that is extremely powerful and extraordinary considering the context. And what I suggest we see in our passage today is three things that stand out. That Jesus' prayer shows his humanity that Jesus' prayer shows his humility and that Jesus' prayer shows his heart. But before that, let's just pray together. Father God, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your son, Jesus, that he's the ultimate example and that we see your son, Jesus, in here praying. Lord, may your words be the words that challenge, convict and encourage us today. Take away any words of my own and let it be only yours that remain in my friends' hearts. Lord, we thank you for this day in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we read verse 39, and it says, And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. See, after Jesus spent time with his disciples breaking bread at his last supper and sharing profound words with them, they would go out to the Mount of Olives where Jesus knew the events that would lead to his death were about to unfold. And so with great anguish and distress, Jesus goes a little ways from the disciples and prays alone. And the first words of his prayer are one that for many come across as quite astonishing. He asks God the Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. And why it's so astonishing 
is because it's here that we perhaps see Jesus, the Son of God, at his most human. In the first words of his prayer in the garden, Jesus' prayer shows his humanity. Up until now, think about it. We've seen Jesus as one who has been fearless, who was fearless. Starting his ministry, he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness and responded unintimidated and unbending. He has silenced, screaming, demon-possessed people with the simple words, be silent. His preaching was bold and fearless as he answered any trap the Pharisees had laid for him with resounding confidence. Even as he, his own death was approaching, Jesus talked about this with his disciples with unflinching composure. But it's here, as Jesus gets on his knees to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, that we see a man who was, as described in Mark's, the Gospel of Mark's account, greatly distressed and troubled. He was a man whose, as it describes, soul was very sorrowful even to death. Here was a truly real, authentic, agonizing, grieving human moment for the very Son of God. Jesus' prayer is honest and wholehearted. He is pouring out his soul as he asks the Father if he is willing to take away what he was about to accomplish through his agonizing death, asking if there was another way. And I say it shows Jesus' humanity because we really see the, the vulnerability and grief of someone who was about to change the world forever at a cost to himself. We see what looks like real, raw emotion and feeling from the Lord. Here was Jesus in need, crying out to his Father for help. This displays so much of his humanity as we can so easily imagine us doing the same thing, can't we? Often crying out when we are in need, crying out to the Lord, pouring out our souls to him when we're going through a great trial or know of a great trial to come. As an author once said, crying out is not a sign of weakness, but a reaction of being human. So what Jesus does here demonstrates something very human, considering he was both fully man and fully God. As John 1 verse 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, as in Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in John in verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That is Jesus. See, while his divinity meant he knew he was there, why he was there and what it was about to unfold leading to his death. His humanity meant Jesus incarnate showed grief in praying, knowing what was to come. He was praying to God about it, bringing to God the woes of what he was about to embark on. He talks to God seeking another way. And it's something we ourselves can identify with, can't we? You know, I think one of the most trialing seasons for my life was when my mum uh, got married. I grew up as a, with a single mum. I have never known my dad. And she was about to get married and was going to move to Sydney with my stepdad. And she was pleading that I would come with her too, being an only child. She wanted me to be there. And I didn't really know this man at all. Uh, there was a sense in me that I knew, yet there was a sense in me that I knew I needed to go because I didn't know who this guy was. But for somebody who had lived in the same city of Adelaide for 20 odd years and had established a life there. Lifelong friends, lifelong job. I was truly comfortable, truly happy. I didn't want to go. I remember praying to God and pleading with him for another way. How can I ensure that my mum would be safe and how could I not lose anything? In the scheme of things, like I look back and I think it, like it wasn't too big of a deal to move. Like most people want to move. But at the time, to imagine upending my life, my entire life, 
out of nowhere. Gave me a lot of grief in that moment. Grief that I brought to God, I remember. And perhaps you've prayed a similar prayer before. Talking to God, asking God to take away that confrontation that needs to happen. Asking God, talking to God in prayer to delay the news you're anxiously waiting for. Maybe you're asking God, talking to God to change your diagnosis as you writhe in pain. Maybe you've come to God before in prayer, pouring out your soul as you ask him to change something, to make something happen, to make things better. I'm sure we've all come to God with these prayers before, and there's good in being able to present ourselves completely vulnerable and honest in front of God as we talk to him. Many of the Psalms is exactly that. Psalm 40 verse 1 says, A Psalm of David, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. Or Psalm 143, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness, answer me in your righteousness. See, as Christians who believe God is the one who's in control and hears our cries and, and plans the paths ahead for us, we ought to come to him when we're in our greatest need, nobody else, because only he has the power and wisdom to hear us and grant our requests. But have you noticed with these kinds of prayers how easy it is for us to go from pouring our hearts to God to to God in anguish, to come to God with complaint and grumbling, subtly or even blatantly questioning God or his wisdom, be mad at him for his plans don't align with ours. Not just want, but demand that he do something different. See, I always remember an episode from The Simpsons. I know that many of us are Christians, so we probably won't know this example. But I always remember an episode from The Simpsons where a hurricane strikes the town. And Marge, the mother and wife of the family, prays to God, saying, God, if you stop this hurricane and save our family, we'll be forever grateful and recommend you to all our friends. Then the hurricane stops and Homer, the husband, goes, he fell for it. Right. (laughs) So Simpson's so good. Anyway, and I laugh about it. But the thing is, these types of prayers aren't just jokes in cartoons, but are actually quite common. See, I've heard of stories of people demanding God in prayer to miraculously get them out of debt and then they'll believe in him. I myself have prayed to God in frustration, telling him, I'm unsure if this is the right thing, God. I'm unsure if you know what's best for me here, and I think you should change it up for me. In those moments of raw emotion, it's very easy for us to get caught up in our feelings and lay aim at God. Because he is in control, we plead with him to make situations bend to how we want. And in our sinfulness, we start to think that our wisdom trumps God, God's, like we want him to change things that better suit us, makes things easier, makes things happier, makes things good. And herein lies one of the reasons why many throughout history have found this passage a problem passage. For many in the early church, they've found this passage hard to grapple with because if Jesus is God, then why would he be so anxious and afraid here is how it looks that he would want to do something different than what he was called to do? Why would he, God's very own son, question God, even like complain to God? See, Julian, the apostate, 
one of the third century Roman emperors and critics of the Christian faith, says that here Jesus pleads as only a miserable person can who's not able to bear his fate, even though he is God. He uses it. Julian the Apostate uses it as an argument that Jesus really isn't God because someone who says he is God wouldn't pray such a prayer. So then why would Jesus, who proclaims to be God incarnate, say such words at the beginning of his prayer? Well, while I say that Jesus' prayer shows his humanity here in our passage, we have to remember that Christ's humanity is different than ours in that he was perfect and he was sinless. 1 Peter 2 verse 22 says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth, which means Jesus' grief, his agony, his sorrow is never mixed with sin. What John Piper says, um, pastor and author John Piper says, is that Jesus is not questioning his father's wisdom when he asks the cup to pass from him. Instead, while bowing to the Almighty's will, he admits honestly his dread of what is to come upon him. Critics of this passage have often used the argument that Jesus is complaining to God here as he prays, saying that the Bible is, is clear that complaining to God as mean, is, is meaning someone is faithless, is wicked, is disobedient, as seen all throughout the Old Testament with so many passages saying, do not grumble or do not complain. But have you noticed that the Bible's answer towards grumbling isn't to just suck it up, but as many psalms and prayers in the Bible attest to, the answer is to bring your troubles to the Lord. Psalm 55 verse 22 says, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. And so what we're seeing here is the perfectly righteous Jesus do exactly that. As he knows his death lies around the corner, Jesus casts his burden on the Lord, praying, Father, if it is possible, take this cup from me. He places no conditions on God. No, God, if you take this cup from me, I will serve you with my whole heart. He places no threats of disobedience. No, God, if you don't take this cup from me, I will never follow you again. No, he places no demands, no suggestions, no questions on God. No, God, take this cup from me as I know the better way to do this. But in his perfect righteousness and sorrowful grief, he simply brings his burdens to the Lord. As theologian Karl Barth says, he only prays. He does not demand. He does not advance any claims. He does not lay upon God any conditions. He does not reserve any future obedience. He just prays. What Jesus shows us as believers here is how to pray faithfully as people. His array of emotions and feelings are on display, and yet he never gives in to sin. But what solidifies his prayer as one that is faithful and exemplary are the words right after it. That after he asks, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Jesus says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. It's here that we get to my next point, that Jesus' prayer shows his humility. That instead of making demands, conditions and showing pride to God as he pours out his soul in prayer, he actually does the complete opposite and prays with immense trust and humility as he seeks the Lord's will and not his own. 
See, whenever we talk about God's will, we can often be led to think of the question, if God is sovereign, as in, is he in, as in he's in control of everything, then how could his will ever not be done? So with a prayer like Jesus here, it might be a little confusing to us. Why would Jesus say, not his will, but the Father's be done? If Jesus is God, then how could the wills have been different? And essentially, if Jesus did his own, then wouldn't that have been God's will for it to be to happen anyway? It's a good question to have, and I'll do my best to explain it as succinct as I can. See, when Jesus refers to his will and the Father's will here, we remember that Jesus, who prayed this prayer, had two distinct natures in one person. And as Jesus prays here in the garden as the incarnate God, as J.C. Ryle puts it, he had a human will as well as a divine will. So when Jesus says, not my will, he meant his human will. So when we hear of God's will in scripture, it's often distinguished between two wills of God. Firstly, the one that we often think of when we think of God's will is God's hidden will, if you will, if you like. These are what we often see in scripture as God's eternal decrees and plans for us in creation. As R.C. Sproul describes, God's foreordination of whatever comes to pass, we refer to it as a hidden will of God because he has not revealed all of it or even most of it to his people. It's what God ordains to happen, working in it and through it to advance his plans and purposes for his glory. That's what, what we often think about when we hear of God's will. Passages such as Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11 speak to this, where it says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. But it's the second type that the Bible speaks of, God's revealed will of what theologians call his will of precept, which is important to note here, where it is God's will that that isn't hidden from us, but consists of things that he finds pleasing in and of themselves. Things which God gives his moral approval for, his rules for godliness. In other words, it's, it's his will that he's given to us that we walk in holiness. Micah chapter 6 verse 8 says it well, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Basically, it's his will in what God wants us to do or not do. It's what we submit to, his will. And so as Jesus prays this prayer in Gethsemane, as he asks if there's any way to achieve God's purpose without drinking this cup, asking God if it's possible, he then immediately says, not by my will, but let God's will be done. What Jesus is doing is praying that he would willingly do what the Lord approves. Because we remember that Jesus, while 100% God, is also 100% man. It means that in his humanness, he is able to be tempted, as we've seen in the wilderness in earlier chapters. And so it makes complete sense that in this moment, it would have drawn immeasurable temptation for Jesus to not follow through with what the Father had planned, to not to go his own way, essentially to bail. That would have been a clear temptation. This was the defining moment that would initiate Jesus' carrying that cross up on that hill to be nailed upon. As past principal of Ridley College, Leon Morris says, at Gethsemane, Jesus did not drink the cup. He consented to drink it. The real battle was fought here. Jesus expressed his apprehension 
as he faced his impending death. And he asked his father to sustain him and give him strength to carry out his father's perfect will. He asks his father that he doesn't give in to his own human temptations, to follow what his humanness was desiring most, but that he may submit to his father's will, to surrender himself completely to what his father desires of him. See, author and pastor John MacArthur says, Jesus was consciously, deliberately, and voluntarily subjugating all his human desires to the Father's perfect will. Jesus, in his prayer, humbles himself to do the Lord's will, to trust, to submit, to obey what God wants from him. And look what it says after in verse 43. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. What was the angel from heaven strengthening him for? See, the the angel strengthens him to carry out what he had to do, that he would still need to take the cup and bear it on that cross. See, Matthew's account, the Gospel of Matthew's account of this prayer in Gethsemane gives us a good view of this. Because in that account, it describes Jesus as praying three times. And on the first time, Jesus prays, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup be from me, pass from me. In chapter 26, it says that in Matthew. But on the second time, as Jesus prays, he says, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. See, while Matthew's account doesn't include the angel, as we read it together, it presumes that the angel was God's response to Jesus' first prayer, that the cup would not be taken away, that God's plan remains the same. There was no other way, but God strengthened his son and helped him. As John Piper says, it's like God saying, don't turn from your mission now in spite of the terrifying prospect. I will help you. Here's my angel to strengthen you. See, Jesus humbly prays to the Father that he would obey the Father's will and not his own, to do what pleases the Father and not act out, even if tempted to. See, Jesus in his humility submits to the Father's will and in agony he prays more earnestly, but I don't think he goes on praying for the cup to pass, but he went on praying for success in drinking that cup. In his humanity, the Son of God needed his Father's power to, to remain submissive to the perfect plan of redemption. As Pastor Jonathan Edwards writes, this was the greatest act of obedience that Christ was to perform. He prays for strength and help, that his poor, feeble human nature might be supported, that he might not fail in this great trial, that he might not sink and be swallowed up, and his strength so overcome that he, would, that he should not hold out and finish the appointed obedience. So in the profound humility shown in his prayer, Jesus shows us that even when we pour out our very souls to God, to our God, we must faithfully trust in his will and pray that we will humbly submit to what he wants from us. So when we're praying to God that he might change this outcome or that he may take this away or that he might grant you something, follow that up with not by my own will, but your will be done. When we pray in our greatest times of need, always pray that we will submit to God's will in trust and obedience to it. 
Because while God hears our requests and sees the deepest trenches of our hearts crying out, his will is always greater than our will. So pray that he will do his will, that we will do his will and not our own. And you can trust that you will be strengthened by him who hears us. And while this doesn't mean that God will send out an angel to you in your greatest times of need, that this is quite unique to Jesus in the garden, as believers of Jesus, know that he has given us his very words in here, in his word and his spirit in here, God in us to strengthen us. Strengthen us with promises in here to sustain us, such as for I, the Lord, your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you in Isaiah 41 or in the Bible. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life or the Lord is my life and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? So as Jesus demonstrates, we need to pray. As author J.C. Ryle puts it, like Jesus, the believer should openly tell his desires to his heavenly father and spread his wishes unreservedly before him. And like Jesus, he should do it completely submitting his will to God. If the very son of God needed his father's power to remain submissive to God's will, how much more do we need to pray that not my will, but yours be done? See, as Jesus continues to pray more earnestly, he does so in such sorrow, grief and agony, so much so that his sweat becomes like great drops of blood falling from the ground. And that is quite an impactful picture, isn't it? That somebody could be brought to sweat blood from such affliction. But the big question that the early church critics ask, and maybe you've wondered all throughout this sermon yourself, is if he is indeed the Messiah, if Jesus is the Saviour, promised by God to come and save his people. And if he is God incarnate, God on earth, walking this earth, knowing what laid in front of him in his death, why does Jesus react so distraught and so distressed in the face of death? Other religious, other religious leaders have faced death calmly. Some have even faced death with indifference, even anticipation. Many throughout history, even before Jesus, had died brave, fearless deaths. So why does Jesus, God himself, the God who created the universe, react to his impending death with such anguish? That is a question that first century Greek philosopher Celsus used against Christianity, asking, how can one who is divine mourn and lament and pray to escape the fear of death? To Celsus, and to many other opposers, these people would see this as more of an embarrassing story rather than an extraordinary one. But these critics couldn't grasp that the answer to why Jesus reacted in such a way to his agonizing, looming crucifixion on the cross was because the cup that Jesus prays may pass without drinking isn't merely referring to his cup of his death like he was praying that he might be spared the wretched and degrading death on the cross. No, but this cup was so much more because the cup in which Jesus is praying to pass that was meant for him is the cup of God's wrath. With the cup 
often the metaphor for God's wrath in the Bible. It's actually appropriate. Actually, it makes perfect sense that Jesus would be distressed to the point of sweating blood. The cup that Jesus found so repugnant to drink was one filled with the entire judgment of God. As he kneeled there on his knees in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was seeing that cup he would need to drink the next day, metaphorically, as he'd be hanging on the cross in unbearable suffering. Jesus' death was not just any old death, but as it says in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, his death was for the wages of sin. Jesus would have to pay the total wages of sin in full. That meant taking on the entire wrath and judgment of God, resulting in his death and his separation from the almighty, holy God, whom he shared in full glory with. As Jesus prays to the Father, distressed and sorrowful, he honestly and vulnerably asks for the cup to pass, not from a dread of physical agony, as horrible as that was, but Jesus foresaw the spiritual agony that he would have to drink, taking on the entirety of God's wrath of sin, the wrath that we actually deserve, not him. Yet he bore it all. Why did this cup even have to be drunk in the first place? It was because of our sin. No matter the severity or measure of our sin, all sin is an assault on the infinite majesty and sovereign authority of God. God, by the perfection of his moral nature, cannot be but hostile to sin, all sin. Psalm 5 verse 4, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. And so it was God's wrath, his just punishment toward our sin that Jesus saw in that cup that night and from which he reacted in such sorrow and such agony. Jesus will be the one who would drink the cup of the wrath of God in our place, enduring unimaginable physical pain, agony, but even more spiritual agony that we deserve so that we would be saved from that same wrath. As author R. Kent Hughes puts it, the cup was steaming with a brew that was so awful so fearful, so dreadful, so unbearable, so appalling, so horrendous that Jesus' soul was revulsed and convulsed. How could he drink such filth? How could he bear his father's wrath? Though in the upper room he had declared that this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood and thus embraced his own death on the cross so he could give them the blessings of the new covenant, he now recoiled at the personal horror he was about to endure. Here was the Son of God, the coming King, the promised Messiah, the Saviour of the world, who knew no sin, praying to his Father before he would become sin. As 2 Corinthians 5 says, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. By Jesus praying for another way, but ultimately praying that he would faithfully obey and submit to the will of God. We so wonderfully see in Jesus' prayer that it shows us his heart 
a heart that would follow through and endure the worst day in all of history, costing him his life and his glory, yet doing so because he loves the Father and surrendered to his will, but also doing so because he loves his people, you and I. This is the night that we see our Saviour as he prays in the garden. On that night, this is his heart. See, as we read of this fateful night, seeing the man of sorrows come to his father in his most vulnerable, we see not an embarrassing night, an embarrassing sight, but we see an extraordinary one because Jesus fulfills what his father wanted from him. We who believe in his salvation can rest assured that the wrath of God has been paid for. That as Jesus fought his own will in prayer, we can be joyful that he submitted to the fathers all the way to that cross. When it comes to prayer in our own lives, God's will is often the most difficult path for us in the short run. Obedience and submission to the Lord's will isn't easy when our nature is one that opposes that. But that's when we look to our Saviour Jesus. And we can know and trust wholeheartedly that submitting to his will will always result in good. And while good may not look like how we imagine it, for Jesus, it cost him his life. But we know obeying the Lord's will will result in good because as it wonderfully says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus endured the cross, drinking the cup of God's wrath on our behalf that we may one day stand in the presence of our good God sitting on that throne. Jesus, who took on the physical agony and the spiritual agony in giving up his life, saw the joy that was set before him, the joy that lay ahead in being exalted at the right hand of the Father, that in his being raised to life three days after his death, his chosen people, us, those who have put their faith in him, may too be raised from life, not after three days, but raised to life for eternity. That is what he saw. This is truly one of the most extraordinary scenes in all of Scripture, that in a prayer we get to see the humanity, humility and heart of our Saviour. And all the more extraordinary is how it is contrasted with those around him. His disciples, the men who were meant to be his closest friends, closest to him, in one of the most important times in all of Jesus' ministry and the disciples' lives too, Instead of praying as Jesus told them to, what did his disciples do? They couldn't even gather the energy for a short moment to stay awake and they fell asleep. While Jesus has shown great vulnerability and need in prayer in our passage today, we can see some of the best saints of church history falter in prayer. Jesus was clearly ready and preparing for the culmination of his ministry, yet his disciples were not. As theologian E.O. Ellis impactfully says, he says this, the disciples had been so eager to fight God's war with man's weapons, as seen in verse 38 before this, but now they fumbled with a more essential weapon, prayer. 
While we've seen Jesus' prayer show us his humanity, show us his humility, show us his heart, I think what this passage importantly shows us is that Jesus' prayer shows us our need, that we need prayer. Jesus prayed before his greatest time of trial, preparing for what was ahead. Jesus prayed, pouring out his soul to the Father. Jesus prayed, seeking the Father's will, Father's strength to do his will. Prayer is more than just a process. It's a relationship with our Lord. And so it is necessary in our daily walk with him. See, while prayer may often get us things that we ask for, absolutely. More importantly, what we see in here, as we see Jesus on his knees, is that prayer gives us God himself. Prayer gives us increased faith and obedience. Prayer humbles us to trust in him as we prepare for whatever joys or trials will come our way, that we may live for his will and not our own. Jesus' prayer life stems from his perfect humanity. He is our greatest example of how we, as weak, failing human beings, should be entirely dependent on God. I love how one pastor describes it, that prayer is the language of dependence. In prayer, Jesus depended on God as he consented to paying the full wages of sin for the joy that was set before him. In prayer, we depend on Jesus as we await our future joy of being reunited with him, our saviour. So in whatever circumstance we may find ourselves in, because Jesus in prayer submitted to his father's will that night in the garden, we can remain trusting because of him. We can remain joyful because of him. We can remain thankful because of him. For as 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Let's pray now. Heavenly Father, what a good and gracious God you are that you would send us your son, Jesus. Thank you that in Jesus he bore your wrath that was meant for us. That Jesus on that night in Gethsemane did not give in to fleshly temptation, but surrendered himself to your good and perfect will. Lord, help us to be a prayerful people. May we come to you in prayer daily in need trusting that you hear our cries and you hear our requests and faithfully submitting to not our will, but yours. Thank you that your son Jesus has been the perfect example of righteousness, that we learn from his prayer and trust in his salvation by your grace alone. May you strengthen each of us daily, each day, as we await our future joy with you. In your precious name, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.